What is the mark of a true church? Is it the pews where we sit? Is it the pulpit where I stand? Is it the steeple outside? Is it the sanctuary inside? Older Protestant church documents and theologians observe two or three marks of a biblical and authentic church. One's the preaching of the word. Second's the correct administration of the ordinances, which we limit to two, baptism and the Lord's Supper. More on that later in 1 Corinthians. But today, it's the third mark of the church that concerns us, the practice of church discipline. Now, is this practice common these days? Well, Al Mohler bemoans how it's the missing mark of churches today. He writes, quote, No longer concerned with maintaining purity of confession or lifestyle, the contemporary church sees itself as a voluntary association of autonomous members with minimal moral accountability to God, much less to each other. The absence of church discipline is no longer remarkable. It is generally not even noticed. Moller recalls how such was not always the case in America. He considers the days before the Civil War, cites the historian Gregory Wills, quote, to an antebellum Baptist, a church without discipline would hardly have counted as a church. Quote. This stance is reinforced by the 19th century theologian John L. Dagg. Quote, it has been remarked that when discipline leaves a church, Christ goes with it. Quote. We can go back further in history. Church discipline isn't a recent invention. We trace it back to the teachings of Jesus himself in Matthew 18. Later, our Lord warned the churches in Revelation 2 to 3 to take sin seriously and take action immediately. And if we do revere God, as we claim we do, his holy character and his holy word, we listen. We practice church, of, uh, church discipline if it's needed. Hopefully not often, but when it's called upon, we need to do it. No surprise that Paul, an apostle of Christ, promotes the same idea, he doesn't pull punches. He doesn't shy away from words like withdraw, avoid, reject when dealing with stubborn sinners. You're going to see the same attitude and approach in today's passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But before we read that, uh, now is a good time to review because we're not only at the beginning of a new chapter, we're starting a new section of the letter. Now, the apostle began the letter with the usual salutations and thanksgiving. And from chapter 1, verse 10, to the end of chapter 4, he immediately addressed the issue of church division. The problem comes from the overestimation of worldly wisdom and the underestimation of God's wisdom. God and the world, in reality, contradict each other. You know, it's like a seesaw at the playground. You can't raise one without lowering the other. You see this contrast at every turn. You exalt the gospel message, but it's foolishness to the rulers of this world, the world in general. Gospel converts are mostly despised by the world. Gospel preachers are the filth of the world, 
Gospel benefits are known through the Spirit of God, not the Spirit of the world. These are truths that Corinthians should know, all believers should know, but they lacked maturity, their worldviews were skewed, value systems all out of whack, and in disarray, Paul gets to work to restore the order. He reminds them, sure, God's ministers have their place in the kingdom of God, kingdom as planters, cultivators, builders, servants, and stewards, but they all stand below the Lord. It's God who gives the increase. It's Christ who's the foundation. It's the Holy Spirit that indwells the church. Carnal and prideful believers overestimate themselves. They forget how grace is undeserved. They forget how now's not the time to experience heaven to the fullest. So like a good father, Paul brings his spiritual children back down to earth. So that's a quick survey that leads us to the beginning of chapter 5. Now we're about to address a new topic, but you'll find the same old problem creeping up again. Evil pride is at the source. So as we read 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 8, keep an eye out for some familiar phrases, puffed up and glorying. So here's 1 Corinthians chapter 5, 1 to 8. Thought about covering this entire chapter in one day, but I think there's enough to go through at two sermons. So 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 8. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned, that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glory is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So in chapters 1 to 4, Paul confronted the lack of unity. In chapters 5 to 6, he confronts the lack of purity. But when you get down to it, whether it's disunity or impurity, Paul views arrogance as the root cause. They're puffed up, verse 2, and glorying in themselves, verse 6. Now, it's interesting to me that even with the common diagnosis, there are two different treatments. In the first case of prideful dissension, we saw, Paul presents biblical reasons to connect, come together, and attach to one another. In the second case of prideful immorality, there are biblical reasons to disconnect, literally detach one from the others. See, we see the wisdom of old revived here. There's a time for embracing 
and then there's a time to refrain from embracing. So keep in mind that pride at the core of the Corinthian problem. Also observe here three terrible symptoms of, uh, of pride. First, pride leads to simple tolerance and inactivity. Pride leads to simple tolerance and inactivity. That's verses 1 to 2. Secondly, pride loses sight of discipline and responsibility. Pride loses sight of discipline and responsibility. That's verses 3 to 5. Thirdly, pride lets in, lets in the subtle influence of evil impurity. Pride lets in the subtle influence of evil impurity. That's verses 6 to 8. So I'll repeat these points later. First, pride leads to simple tolerance and inactivity. One modern Christian author said, quote, Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness is whatever makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. It's sad enough that saints become worldly as individuals. It's sadder still to watch an entire church look no different than the world. What's worse, the Corinthian church not only look like the world around them, they shock the world. Right? So just come out and say it. A male member of this church is in a sexual relationship with the stepmother. We gather that the lady's not a believer since there's no call to remove her from the fellowship. As for the father, whether he's dead or still living, it doesn't matter. This man has his father's wife. With such language, Paul echoes God's law in Leviticus 18 and 20, and Deuteronomy 22 and 27. The wording reminds us of what Jesus said to the Samaritan woman in John 4, 18. It suggests continuity and persistence. This is not a one-time mistake. I venture a guess that they're living together. This kind of relationship displeases God, obviously, and dishonors the Father, dishonors the church, even the Gentiles would frown upon it and disapprove. You see their disdain for this kind of thing in their plays and philosophy, from Sophocles to Socrates, from Oedipus Rex to Xenophon. Right? So how did it not shock the Corinthian church to action? Well, the answer is pride. Pride it's pride that leads us to simple, to, uh, simple tolerance and inactivity. They didn't take sin seriously, so they didn't take action immediately. They should have torn their clothes, put on sackcloth, sit on ashes, weep and wail, but they didn't. They were happy and even proud to leave the whole matter alone. Business as usual, as if nothing happened. This is how arrogance leads to error. 
You deceive yourself. Pride can be a reason you act rashly, sure, but pride can also be a reason you act cowardly. It leads to sin of commission, yes, but it also leads to the sin of omission. With it, you start to resemble King Saul in 1 Samuel 15. Remember, going through that, you set up a monument for yourself, you obey the voice of the people, you ultimately reject the word of God. And as and once you get your eyes off of scriptures, you neglect your duty. And, and I'll get to the second point now. Pride loses sight of discipline and responsibility. Pride loses sight of discipline and responsibility. The three verses here, verses 3, 4, and 5, takes us, I think, to the past, present, and future, respectively. Verse 3 tells us what Paul has done already, so that's reference to the past. For his part, he has already pronounced his sentence. Even from a distance, the sin is so glaring and obvious, he could not ignore it. This is not some form of absentee voting, by the way. There's more influence here than that, a whole lot more. Paul's an apostle sent by Christ, and he has unique God-given authority over churches. Especially, especially one he has planted, founded, and fathered. Right? You see how Paul's judgment is not the only requirement for the expulsion of this person. Right? That takes us to verse 4, to the present. Now imagine the congregations gathered on a Sunday and they read this letter. And they should feel shame rising up in them, right? There's only one course of action left. And Paul simply wants the Corinthians to do what Jesus wants them to do. You know, I mentioned Matthew 18 earlier. Those are words of our Lord. There are three basic steps of discipline there. Recall that after a one-on-one confrontation, you are to take one or two with you. If both attempts do not convince the offender to repent, you tell the entire church. If the person refuses to hear the church, he or she must be treated like an outsider you could say that 1 Corinthians 5.4 gives us sort of another perspective of that third step where it's brought before the entire church. It takes us to that scene of the congregational judgment. By the way, if you want help understanding the sentence structure, I suggest the following. In verse 4, there should be four commas total in the NKJV. I don't know if you're using another Bible version, but if you're using the NKJV, You'll find four commas in verse 4. Look for two of them. The first comma and the last comma, they both follow Christ. Replace the first comma with an opening parenthesis and the last comma with the closing parenthesis. And that marks out the phrase, when you're gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then you get the following idea. When you stand together as a church, you have the backing of an apostle You stand on the foundation of Jesus, but merely being present is is not enough. You must represent Christ. So in the name of Lord Jesus Christ, excommunicate the sexual deviant. Next in most of verse 5, we look to the future. When church disciplines are ministered biblically, We don't just forget about this person. We continue to pray for his 
restoration and reconciliation, our pleas for repentance should ring in his ears as he leaves the safe boundaries of the church. But make no mistake, this man is leaving the safe boundaries of the church. He forsakes godly fellowship. He steps out into the domain of darkness where there are dangers of sin and death. It's the realm of Satan, who's the prince of this world and the god of this age. The whole world is under his control. In that place, the lost dwell without hope and without God. In that place are those who turned away from God, who concerning faith have suffered shipwreck. Paul will talk about this later in 1 Timothy, like Hymenaeus and Alexander. In that world of corruption, God's elect ones suffer, and the righteous are oppressed. So now, if this man is meant to be in the Lord's kingdom, he'll come to his senses before the day of judgment. Hounds of heaven will chase him and drive him back to the fold of God. At some point, he'll demonstrate genuine faith through genuine repentance before he dies. We trust that our Lord in his sovereign grace will handle the outcome. Meanwhile, we humbly and lovingly do our part now. So if we take this long view, long view of excommunication, we'll avoid the wrong view, I think. So we'll see that church disciplines ultimately loving, even if it hurts now. Even if it seems like tough love, even if the culture says, how can you do such a thing? I think what's worse than hate is enabling the delusion. The notion that everything's okay between this person and God and this person and us. Don't lose sight of discipline and responsibility. Just one quick application on this. Don't give up on praying for that happy ending for the unrepentant sinners you know. Most of us here have been believers for a long time. We've seen a lot of believers grow in their faith, do, go on to do great things. I'm willing to bet some of you know people who have turned away from the faith. Modern term, deconstructed. Just love the world. Right? Departed from church, departed from God, fundamentally. If you're a parent, sibling, relative, or friend of someone who has turned away from God, pray, maybe even fast for him or her. Share your burden with others. Bring those names to prayer meetings and flock groups. Grieve for them. Beg the Father that we'd see them back on our side on the day of Christ. We have some illustrated Bible story books at home. One of my son's favorites is the parable of the lost son. You know, the one from Luke 15, right? So, Sometimes he and I like to act out the parable. He tells me to wave at him, and I'm supposed to pretend I'm crying, right? He takes a, maybe, I don't know, he just sometimes goes off on his own, walks away without looking back, right? After a few seconds, he returns, and I'm supposed to hop on my feet, just as the illustration goes, and we end with hug and dancing, right? Now, I don't want to push the analogy too far, but there are some parallels with the ultimate goal of church discipline. 
We pray that the sinner feels the emptiness of his pocket, right? his stomach, his soul, out there in Satan's domain. We hope that he'll crash into the dead ends of life, right? be reminded of the Father's rich mercy, and come to himself, come to his senses. Maybe he needed to hang by a thread at the edge of death before journeying back home. Again, we as disciplinarians cannot control the outcome, right? but we do our part now. We trust that God's ways are best. That's how we humbly and responsibly practice church discipline. Now, while we are doing our part, we realize we're dealing with very sensitive content. It's as if we need to don hazmat suits before handling toxic material. We're in for a world of hurt if we're arrogant and take the influence of evil lightly. So, you know, as Proverbs 16, 18 says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Elsewhere in Galatians 6.1, he says, Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. And that gets us thinking about the third principle, how pride lets in the subtle influence of evil impurity. So verse 6 begins with the simple indictment. Your glorying is not good. Perhaps the Corinthians were patting themselves on the back, high-fiving each other, saying, well, we got the situation under control. Maybe they justify themselves like this. No big deal. It's only one person in the congregation. Or don't you see all the good he does at church? Don't just define him by this one sin. Are we all sinners after all? Who are we to judge? What this man does at home and in his bedrooms, none of our business. We handle it the best we can. Let's move on. Nothing to see here. All this containment, all this minimizing, all this downplaying is wrong. Our personal individual holiness does affect our corporate group holiness. We're talking not just church leaders, but church members too to stress how dangerous unaddressed sins can be, to help us see the subtle influence of evil impurity, Paul gives us a simple and same time profound illustration here. It's simple because in essence it's a baking illustration. Well, maybe not simple for me, but for most of us it should be simple. There's a science behind leaven and lump, or in modern terms, um, yeast and dough. But it's easy science. I found this online at Food Network website. Right? Everything starts with yeast, which actually is a living organism. Yep, every single variety is living from active dry yeast to instant yeast to fresh yeast. When you add yeast to water and flour to create dough, it eats up the sugars in the flour, excretes carbon dioxide gas and ethanol. This process is called fermentation. The gluten in the dough traps the carbon dioxide gas, preventing it from escaping. The only place for it to go is up and so the bread rises. Okay. You're welcome for the 
education of fermentation and science of leavening. But you don't need a scientific background to explain this idea. It's no secret. It's ancient knowledge. As verse 6 says, just a tiny bit of leavening agents, all that's needed. Pretty basic stuff. But then this illustration goes on, and it can be profound. Move on to verse 7. Let's start with the first sentence here. Throughout the Bible, especially in the New Testament, leaven can be a picture of sinful influence. So by analogy, when a sinner refuses to repent of his or her sin, there's no choice but to remove him or her from membership. That's how you purge out the old leaven and become a new lump or dough. Every congregation must fulfill God's calling to be unleavened bread. Do our best. Become what you're meant to be. Seek purity. Now as we continue, the second sentence of verse 7 explains why we should purge out the old leaven, and I'll read it again. It's worth rereading. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Now we're in the depths now in terms of profound truth. The best way to approach the second half of verse 7 and the rest of verse 8 is to realize the following. We're on a journey. Okay, we're on a journey. Christianity is not a static faith. There's a movement from point A to point B. We depart from the city of destruction. We're on the way to the celestial city. The world is not our home. We're strangers, sojourners, and pilgrims here. Our citizenship is in heaven. Like the saints of old, we desire heavenly country. We wait for the city which has foundations, whose builder, maker, and preparer is God. So when does this journey begin? This is where we find parallels to the Exodus story in the Old Testament. This is where we stop to appreciate how things written before were written for our learning. Now I need to set up the juxtaposition first. About 3,500 years ago, the first Passover was instituted, celebrated. You can read about it in Exodus 12 to 13. And the context is really important. It took place as the Lord struck down all the firstborn of Egypt, right? the final plague to break the oppressors of God's people. Meanwhile, the Israelites received the following instructions. Kill a young, unblemished male lamb, put his blood in the basin, take hyssop and dip in it, strike the lintel and the doorposts of the house and get inside and stay inside. Right? The destroyer, destroyer would see the blood and he would not enter that house to strike the firstborn. Right? Rather, he'd pass over it, hence the name Passover. The Passover's foundation to the seven-day Feast of Unleavened Bread, they're so close in context and in the calendar that you could even refer to them interchangeably. Now, to be sure, there's nothing magical about the unleavened bread itself. It's somewhat mundane, actually. It was common back then to prepare such a bread for an easy, quick meal, say, when you're hosting unexpected guests. That's why it was perfect as a food item to bake in haste as the Israelites packed and left Egypt. So as the Passover lamb was prepared, 
the celebrants also made sure there was no leaven in the house. Okay, so that's what the Israelites observed. What does that have to do with us as Christians? Well, this Passover feast of unleavened bread combination establishes a pattern for Christians in the church age. But we're not talking about observing spring holidays. It pertains to our entire spiritual life. First and foremost, just as it was with Israel, there's no deliverance from bondage without Passover. About 2,000 years ago, Jesus became our Passover. It's no coincidence that before Jesus died, they raised hyssop near his mouth. It's no coincidence that he died around 3 p.m. The Judeans were busy preparing for the evening Passover meal. It's no coincidence that after he died, his bones were kept intact, unbroken, just as it was required of the Passover lamb. Look in John 19 and see for yourself. Confirm for yourself that Jesus is the fulfillment of Passover. This ancient custom was the shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. So Jesus shed his blood so that we can be covered, be saved from destruction, and be free from sin. Now we're on our way in our own Exodus journey. We leave behind this present evil age, the world that's passing away. Now Christ has done his part and fulfill the Passover prophetically, we as Christians do our part and fulfill the Feast of Unleavened Bread spiritually. Here's what I mean. As born-again Christians, the feast becomes a symbol of our sanctification and growth in holiness. As we celebrate our freedom in Christ, we enter our personal spaces, as it were, light our lamps and inspect every nook and cranny, We do this not only individually, but also together. We look for traces of malice and wickedness. We rid ourselves of any evil impurity. We're left with sincerity and truth as our perpetual diet for maturity. This is the way to spend our days on earth until the day of Christ. This is how we avoid pride and refuse to let in the subtle influence of evil impurity. For those who may not grasp all of this, I leave you with this final word. The great Christian exodus story can be your story through the gospel. It's the good news that begins with the bad news. We've all sinned, and we're all under the bondage of sin. This is our state left to ourselves in humanity. We We may not be guilty of incest, but we're guilty of sexual immorality of all different kinds, right? Our Lord Jesus warned, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Add to that, we're puffed up and proud, glorying in ourselves. Our souls are not upright with us. We're wicked and violent in our ways. For all these reasons, we deserve to be punished separated from God for eternity. But the Lord saw us with compassion and love. He did not forget us when we were helpless and without strength. 
He sent the prophet like Moses. Like Moses, Jesus was preserved at a young age from a murderous king. He grew up and taught truths and performed wonders. Yet Jesus was greater than Moses, worthy of more glory. Because Jesus is not a mere man, but he's God and man at the same time. He lived a perfect life and fulfilled the law. But then Jesus willingly gave himself his life on the cross. As I stated already, he became our Passover lamb without blemish, without spot. His flesh was torn as he was crucified. He shed his blood in our place to cleanse our sins. He suffered so that we may escape judgment and pass from death to life. But then he rose again from the grave. After showing many proofs of his resurrection, he ascended to heaven. Someday he'll return to judge the world. There's only one way to escape condemnation. Only Christ Jesus can save you. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Christ, through him. Jesus, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So repent, turn from sin and self-righteousness. Turn to Jesus and trust in him. You cannot earn or deserve heaven. God saves us by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And once we're saved, you can start your new life in Christ. You're nourished by sincerity and truth. You're filled with joy. You join other believers, traverse the wilderness of this fallen world, and we're destined for the promised land. There's even a greater feast waiting there. Someday we'll be completely free from the presence of sin. Are you looking forward to that day? Are you secure in the power of Christ's blood? Are we fighting sin? So let our final song be a reminder of this truth. Drawn to the third verse of this final song, there is a fountain in verse 14. I'm sorry, no, page 14. Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed ones of God be saved to sin no more. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you keep your promises. You did not leave us as we are. You heard us as we cry out to you, as we feel the bonds and the the oppression of sin, and the oppression that we've brought to ourselves by sinning and turning away from you in all our ways, in our thought life, in our, in our speech, in our choice to deviate from your design. But we see all this and we cry out to you and many of us have cried out to you and you saved us. But Lord, may we not grow lax or just in looking in ourselves for traces of sin and malice and seeking purity and fleeing from sexual immorality. Lord, help us to do this together. You called us out of this world. Help us to get the world out of us. Lord, we thank you for the truth that your son is the Passover. 
and we are to observe this feast of unleavened bread in a spiritual sense to rid ourselves of impurity. Give us the strength through your spirit to battle the flesh, to resist sin, to turn to you and run to you even in times we may fail. And we thank you for your mercy. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.